Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast, the most popular podcast in heaven amongst the communion of saints. I'm here with Laura Heeman and Professor Daniel Gibbons. Hello, everybody. Hey, Clark. Hi, Dan. Hello. What we're going to talk about today is classical education, um, both in the Hyattsville community where Laura is at and the Kansas City community. New classical schools are getting founded. We both know people involved in um, founding these schools and our board. Me- we have multiple board members, of Simple House involved in this. And so we're going to kind of do a mining of like what's involved in that. And Laura, would you like to introduce Professor Gibbons? Sure. Um, so, uh, uh, Dan and I have known each other for, I don't know, however long my kids have been at St. Jerome's. <laughs> um, so we both uh, send our kids to um, St. Jerome's Academy here in Hyattsville, and he has uh, five boys who are kind of toddler age to high school, and I thought Dan would be the perfect person uh, to have on here. He teaches English at CUA, um, and he uh, helped found the um, new high school here in, in D.C., um, St. Jerome Institute, um, which is, um, he would say, a liberal ed, um, but uh, what a lot of people might think of as a classical high school. Um, and so he's, he's the board president for that school. He helped write the curriculum for that school, as well as actually the core curriculum for the CUA undergrads. Um, and one more interesting thing is that he and his wife um, do a great service to the community by um, reading a lot of children's literature, young adult literature, and uh, uh, I think uh, helps a lot of us moms at least navigate, <laughs> you know, what we want our kids to read. Um, so, um, yeah, and I think, uh, Clark, are we going to link, we're going to link the um, uh, Dan's wife uh, puts together uh, SJA book fair list that we can link on there, which is just really great list of books. Um, so a reading list for parents to list. have if you're guiding your kids through yeah. good books. I, I think we'll probably end up linking a few other things by the end of this podcast. But <laughs> um, yeah, but so um, yeah, Dan is a great member of our community. And, um, and uh, yeah, so... Thank you, Dan, Dan. for being here. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Thanks, Laura and Clark, for for having mm -hmm. me today. Well, Dan, can I start by asking you kind of a trivial question, and then we'll get into classical ed. What is your specialty within, like, English literature? Yeah, my research specialization is in what we often call it the English Renaissance or early modern English literature. Who was William Shakespeare? Well, he was William Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. Enough um, said. <laughs> <laughs> There's kind of an edgy Catholic group in New York City that just did something like an Edward Devere Ball or something like this, mm-hmm. like who they ever they claim is Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I don't have the time to get to the bottom of this, but I was just curious. Yeah, let's not go down that rabbit hole today. I'm, I'm happy to come back another day and talk okay. to you about the uh, Stratfordian and the anti-Stratfordian um I don't, even, I don't even know. That's, that's, that's so neither no, here nor there. No simple answer to, to this question. Is this okay, like, good. is Tupac alive kind of question or what? What's, yeah, anyway. I think that's a yeah. good analogy. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Well, I also want to say that where we're coming from is highly sympathetical to classical education. Um, obviously, you guys are sending your kids there. My kids go to Montessori. I am for the movement. Uh, I donate, I've donated money to classical education. But I think, you know, in this podcast, we're going to talk about like 
the limits or like where it could get into trouble and things like that. And I just don't want anyone to think that this is down on it at any level. We just want to fully explore it, you know? Um, what could Dan, could you start by defining what is this classical education movement that is so popular right now? Yeah. So I, I think what most people mean by that is a way of organizing education that brings back instruction in classical languages usually Latin, and includes more focus on certainly the stories and the mythology and the history of ancient Greece and Rome as foundational to Western culture and therefore good subjects of study for, for people living in the West. I don't usually use that word because I think it can be a little misleading. Um, classical Classical, education. yeah. yeah. Um, but I, but I know it's a word that people understand there. They, they have a kind of general cloud of things that they can attach to that. And so, you know, it's understandable. I just think it's a little, it could be confusing because it might lead you to believe that all you're ever going to study is ancient Greece and Rome. Um, and that's not the case for most schools that I'm aware of that are successful. So what, what term do you use? Yeah. So you might use the term liberal arts education. So um, I think, you know, one of the, the ideas of folks who are proponents of classical education is, well, this is the this is the sort of education that St. Augustine got. And this is the sort of education that Dante got. And it's the sort of education that William Shakespeare got. And so it couldn't be all bad. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of historical trouble with those kinds of claims. Um, it, what we're doing today is not at all what they would have done in the education that St. Augustine received or that Dante received. A lot of the methods that we use today have roots in um, innovations in pedagogy that were happening in the 1500s, 1600s. Um, but there is a, a certain tradition of correspondence that relates to what we call the liberal arts and the ones that we're primarily concerned with at elementary primary schools are the first three of those grammar logic and rhetoric and and really for most of them just grammar and logic and that's was called the trivium and then what was called the quadrivium which is sort of the next higher set of studies after you do the trivium which is mathematics and music and geometry and astronomy so that's the liberal arts um in the in the classical view, uh, we still use that term liberal arts broadly now to mean something else. So that has its own confusions that can come with it. But so I, I usually use the term Catholic liberal education because it's a, a, you know, it's a broader term and it, I think, accounts for more of what we're doing. I, I think uh, once when we spoke before, you um, said you also like the term uh, liberal ed because it points to what the end of the education, you know, what the goal is. Yeah, so right. So liberal doesn't mean like the American political configuration, liberal versus conservative, um, nor does it exactly mean liberalism in the 18th century meaning of that word as a, as a political term, um, a term in political philosophy. Um, it really just means um, the arts for, for free people, for free men. Um, classically, <laughs> um, because women were rarely educated. And so 
for those people who didn't have to labor, this is the sort of education that they wanted because it's an education for leaders, the people with enough leisure time to be involved in the political life, say, of the Roman Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, or in the Middle Ages, the gentry who had the freedom to engage in free study. So I kind of have a question about that history a little bit, just comparing my own kind of like ideas I came into the uh, conversation with to what you're saying. So my understanding was like in the that this is not classical education in the sense of the education of the classical world. That's what you've said. And that that education would have been very memorization based, probably. That's my sense of it. And that in the high Middle Ages, they weren't reading as much classical stuff until it was kind of rediscovered in like the 15th, 16th century. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think as a general sketch, you're on the right track. That Right. There's, okay. a, there's a lot of rote memorization, um, a lot of imitation. A lot of schools that understand themselves as classical schools like St. Jerome's do want to place some amount of emphasis on those methods. You know, this is partly due to Dorothy Sayers' piece that she wrote some years ago that, again, was a kind of an iconic piece for a lot of folks who are interested in classical education, even if she's making all kinds of claims that have no historical foundation, (laughs) you know, and, and, and there are real problems with her way of framing classical education. But what she observes is something similar to what Maria Montessori observed, right, that there are just certain certain times in a, in a child's life when certain ways of approaching reality are uh, more joyful and more effective in learning. And, um, and, and to follow those can be important. And what, you know, what Sayers argues is that the, the classical education, far from just being some abstract, rigid system, it, you know, if you, under, if you approach the, the trivium subjects as subjects that are mm. more appropriate with certain kinds of methods that are more appropriate to certain ages, then um, you're going to have a more successful structure of education. And, and, you know, there's a certain amount of empirical research that has confirmed some of those observations about brain development and more or less what age that happens at and, and cognition and stuff like that. So another thing I had heard was that when the Jesuits hit the scene and were starting all the Jesuit high schools around Europe, was that they were bringing a new teaching method that was very much kind of like, um, uh, like kind of, I don't it's what Tom's Aquinas College uses. I can't remember what that's called, where it's like a, a, a dialogue, like it's not like memorization based, like a seminar based, like asking, using the Socratic method in their teaching. And that this was like pretty revolutionary to the point that the, the historical book I was reading was like, even at the height of Protestant Catholic tensions, Protestants were sending their kids to Jesuit high schools because it was that much better. Right. Um, is that kind of the beginning of what we're talking here? Like when you talk about the 15th and 16th century, that pedagogy changing? Yeah, so, so the Jesuits were, you know, they had their own goals and, the, and their own methods that were particular to their charism, of course. But they, right, they emerged in the 1500s and their outlook was shaped by the rise of a movement that we now call humanism right or the studia humanitatis and so the study of the humanities and and right and so that's one of the changes that's happening at that time that has to do with what's appropriate subject matter for school uh for example reading a lot of classical literature as um as appropriate for time at school which was not commonly the view 
in the Middle Ages. Literature, like mm -hmm. imaginative literature, was not worth your time in school. It's not what you're there to spend your time on in school. You want to—that's your pleasure reading, you know. But this goes back. There, there are kind of deep roots in the in the Christian tradition about a, a certain disagreement about this that you can see articulated in in really. Um, really persuasive ways on the one hand in the works of Augustine who utterly rejects his education. He was based, he was a rhetoric teacher, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of a modern English teacher. And at that time teaching Virgil's Aeneid was part of the curriculum. Um, and he, he rejects that. He said, this is basically a huge waste of his time, uh, mm. you know, reading all these licentious pagan works. It's not worth your time. The only pagan literature he's really willing to say is worth anybody's time potentially is the, um, Platonic philosophers. And, and even they, he says, really, they can't tell you anything that's not in the Bible anyway. So you really ought to just be reading the Bible. Um, you know, and the historians, right? On the other hand, around the same time, you have St. Basil, who we have a, a piece of writing on the instruction of, of young men or boys uh, written by St. Basil, in which he observes that young people aren't really mature enough to deal with what's in the Bible. Um, the mm. Bible is a pretty complex work in a lot of different ways and difficult to interpret. Yeah. And, you know, you don't really want the kids reading a lot of the stuff that's in the Bible. so. This is um, uh, Clark and I had a, an argument recently about <laughs> about this. I I met I really hate children's Bibles, uh -huh. and I feel like the Bible is like a loaded gun. So it's like if you have your kids play with it, you could have an accident. Yep. You know, but it's like very I'm all easily I, misunderstood. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so Saint Basil said, "Look, before young men can deal responsibly with what's actually in the Bible, they have to love virtue." You have to be a lover of virtue first before you can read the Bible with a virtuous heart that's going to lead you the path you're supposed to be led down. And he made an argument for teaching Greek literature, which means pagan literature at that time. This is the fourth mm. century AD. Um, there wasn't really a lot of Christian imaginative literature out there at all. Um, so, you know, it meant pagan literature, it meant Homer and, and the like. Um, and he said, look, you should teach these things to young men because they have the capacity to uh, inspire hearts with the love of, of virtue, you know, the pagan virtues, not, not the theological virtues, the cardinal virtues. But once they love those, that can strengthen up the heart. And, you know, you feed soft food to babies until they get strong enough teeth that they can actually chew the meat. And then, then you give them the meat. When you say young men, are you talking like second graders? Or are you talking like ninth graders or what? Yeah, what he's really talking about is boys, which means probably anywhere from starting at age 10-ish um, up, up till, you know, mm -hmm. the, the teenage years. Young men were expected to be more mature and independent earlier than they are now. Um, but around age 10 was a typical time that they'd start instructing young men and go to grammar school. And what they were, the grammar they were learning was Latin grammar in the West. Um, you know, they weren't learning English or French grammar or whatever. You learn that from, you know, mm -hmm. your mom or your local parish priest or something. Um, if you're, if you're going to learn, you know, if you're going to think analytically about your native tongue at all, which is unlikely actually. So another misunderstanding I had besides classical education actually being the education of the classical period is that 
I thought, well, maybe it's like a great books education, like a St. John's College out there, you know, in Maryland or what. Mm-hmm. So, like, how is it different? Like, are you actually doing like the great Western books? Is that the focus of like the high school education? I think there is a lot of overlap and sensibility between the great books movement and the classical movement that the whole Mortimer Adler great books thing was a particular thing. And and much of what he was recommending that people read uh, was the literature of the ancient world. But it was also great modern books, you know, for those who were really focused on just kind of recovering the classics in a way, I guess, you know, he wouldn't use a great books movement kind of language. Also the great books movement, tends to be really entrenched in the idea that you must read only the original texts at its strongest iteration, which I think few actually employ, even St. John's, you must read them only in the original languages or you should not read them at all. (laughs) Um, You know, that's, that's a really strong logic. Now that's not where Mortimer Adler was with it, but you know, but that, that would follow the logic of that movement. The other logic that's behind all this is that like when you were talking about the education of leaders and things, it's kind of an elite education, right? Like if you say, hey, read all the great books in the original languages, well, you're not talking about all my kids. You know what I mean? Like you're not talking about the average person that you're going to master three or four languages and read all the great books. No, though your kids could. It's just not, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I expect they probably have the capacity to do it, but we don't have the kind of cultural commitment that would lead to that for almost anybody nowadays so you're right but it is it, it was it was very class related it was the education for a certain kind of a person who's going to fill a certain kind of role in society and for a while something like it was preserved by the clerical estate right in the middle in the western middle ages but really only for priests for a long time um and then right in the later middle ages the laity come to seek that education more they're going to the monastic schools but not intending to become priests or nuns and then you get a huge clerical class that's sort of in a gray area where they're clerks but they're not actually ordained ever um and they're but they're serving all kinds of important social roles Mm -hmm. as secretaries and you know um you get lay scholars and and so it starts to spread and this this studio humanitatis kind of comes out of that ferment um provoked in part by guys like Petrarch in the 1300s and, the, and a critique of, of the, the scholastic model of education. But yeah, I, I mean, so so I, I, I do think that a lot of this stuff, both, both the content of the classes and, and the rise of literature as central to education um, and, the, and the rise of historical study as central to education, the rise of eloquence as central to education comes a little bit out of a public facing objective that we're that we're training people for a certain kind of life they're going to be good public mm-hmm. servants they're going to be good leaders they're going to be eloquent in order to persuade the masses uh to to lead them to the good um so do you so. do you think like um today's classical education is like for for everyone you know <laughs> so um, when you get to america the great books movement it to a certain extent is this american thing that happens mm-hmm. it connects in a way with the um, with the GI Bill and other movements that are happening in the mid 20th century in the United States, where there's an idea that we're going to open up this education that had traditionally been just sort of for the gentry, mm-hmm. um, for the for the privileged, we're going to open it up and make it available to everybody. And and the notion that well, actually, 
the, the we are we're all supposed to be free, right? We're all you know the objective mm-hmm. here is that we're not going to have nobility in America anymore. We're going to have we're going to have free citizens, and we're all going to be are fundamentally equal. And and so why shouldn't we all get the education of gentlemen? And and we need everybody to be a, a canny, persuasive public servant in a way. And we we need everybody to be a leader. And I think that's the the idea behind. Um, moving what had been a kind of elite education into the bookshelves of everyday people um, with, with the Great Books Movement and into the colleges like the University of Dallas or St. John's um, and then into lower schools, elementary, primary and elementary schools and high schools um, is an idea. No, this is an education. This actually is an education for everybody. Yeah. I, I kind of wanted to push back on this idea that like, Yes, maybe originally it was for the elites or for the upper class, right? But I also felt like a lot of this education was also for the above average intelligent. You know, like Mm. today you hear people critiquing college education isn't for everybody, right? Because we've Mm. kind of made it for everybody. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's not a good idea, right? And I think we all know, like, you meet people who are like reading Plato or whatever, and some of them are getting like maybe the bigger meanings and some of them are just learning what he said, maybe, Right. And when I was trying to talk about my kids or whatever, it's like, I don't know that all of them have the ability to master three languages. Mm. Right. Just from like, a, this is like, I'm not trying to. I, I think that's a limited historical perspective. I, I think when okay, people are, when people, or, or even now, right, if you live in a place where you just have to know a little bit of a bunch of languages in order to get along, you just do. I mean, think yeah, about how okay. almost the whole rest of the world knows a little bit of English plus their mother tongue. And a lot of them know a little bit of French or a little bit of whatever else language is next door to them just because they have to. We, you know, we're in this yeah. really privileged position as Americans where we don't have to learn another language because everybody will conduct business and politics in our language. And we live on this little island almost, you know. I think that misses the point. Like if I'm going to read like Rousseau or some book, in a translation or in the original language, the only reason it would make sense for me to read in the original language is if I'd mastered that language to the degree that I was better than the translator, mm-hmm. or I really sensed the deeper meanings in it, right? Which is different than like a functional passing in a language. Sure. If that's what you I, mean. I do want to say, like, uh, you know, when I, as a young 20s person, traveled in Europe, like uh, one particular person that stood out was this kind of underachieving guy who was like a pothead living at a surf hostel spoke fluently six languages like all the way fluently (laughs) you know and and that's um he was from switzerland and because of his you know sort of circumstances it made sense that he would but it was like three or four of those languages were necessary and then the other two also just you know like he didn't need to know spanish living in switzerland but he did um i think dan's point right is maybe maybe we think more people are limited in language learning but we don't have a culture of it here right, right. Of, and of, it's the same with memory right what we expect people can remember and what that we don't think they can remember and when you live in an oral primarily oral culture you're just People can remember things in a way we couldn't even conceive of now. But yeah. I mean, the one thing I'll say about it is, right, different people are going to have different capacity to understand complex ideas, regardless of the language they're reading them in. And yeah, it takes a pretty high level of language mastery, which requires a lot of time mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people. 
if you're going to be reading with with great comprehension the works of subtle writers in other languages for sure and even you know even in your native language you're going to get people who have a wide variety of capacity at different ages in their lives based upon different levels of experience they have to to comprehend certain subtle things about complex books that's you know that's the state of affairs of, for humans generally and it's true that there's a that part of what's involved in that elitism thing is free time that it that that the expectation was to be free meant you didn't have to labor to get income that's what the gentry were in the middle ages is there kind of like a double idea though of like one is like literally like free time and then the other one is sort of in a deeper sense like uh kind of like a human freedom Mm -hmm. yeah that's right and so so you gained economic freedom and then that puts you in a position where you would be capable to undertake studies that would give you a sort of spiritual and mental freedom mm-hmm. um and make you free in that in that other sense right yeah and i and so to get us back kind of on to classical education or you know contemporary catholic liberal education i, I don't think many places expect that anybody's going to read a great deal in the original languages until they get pretty far along in their studies. Yeah, so I, I don't think that that's a central idea of modern liberal arts education. In fact, I think a lot of colleges are relinquishing, even requiring students to learn one foreign language. So um, at the at the pretty elementary level that we expected it a decade ago. So that's, you know, whatever. But but I do think that there's there's a further interest in learning Latin the Latin yeah. language in particular, and teaching the Latin language to children, uh, starting at a pretty young age. One way to look at it that I think is pretty common is that it's serviceable, that that's a serviceable way of approaching a language. It's in, You approach the language in an analytical way, and, and because Latin is a declined language, it requires you to sort of explode you know if you approach it analytically it it requires you to kind of explode the mechanism of the language and really look carefully at, at cases right what 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 different words are used for mm-hmm. and you have to be really attentive to that in latin because word order doesn't matter and it's all about kind of the endings of the words that tell you what purpose mm-hmm. they serve in a language and that there's a kind of intellectual exercise there that's really helpful and I'm fine with that argument. It's a little utilitarian, um, you know, and it, it, it would be possible to do the same thing with Greek. So why not Greek? Mm-hmm. Um, it would be possible to do the same thing with other declined languages. So why not those languages? Why Latin? Um, that question arises for me. And it was part of our reflection when I was in a group that set out from the ground up to rewrite high school education uh, based on a Catholic anthropology. And we thought, well, we're not going to do anything just for those kind of utilitarian reasons. It's great if those benefits come along with it, but what's really the heart of education? Um, you know, how do you become, uh, a more great souled person, which is really what, what we're looking for and looking for the absolute freedom of, um, life in heaven and what's needed to contend with the challenges of our world in order to reach that goal, to become the sort of person who's likely to be able to reach that goal. And so when we looked at the learning of the Latin language, for us, it was more about the need for young Catholics to feel a sense of of re-inheritance of a patrimony that had been lost um, in in two generations and, and a connectedness to the great tradition. 
of the Catholic Church, of the Catholic intellectual tradition, of the Catholic arts, and start to engage and unlock some of the depths of those pieces of literature as something that, that, that is proper to you, something you own, something that's formed you without you really knowing it. You know, we don't learn about it in school, so it seems other when, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's actually our, um, it's in our DNA intellectually. So in a way, um, this is very timely right now because all of humanity, at least in the first world, has more leisure than ever before. So the very, that component of the education is now fairly common. Like you can be the kid of a blue collar worker and have a lot of leisure, you know? Um, and so we can create this classical education and kind of shoot very broadly with it. Like it can be for everyone in a sense, right? Can you talk more about like, why now, right? Like there's some grid energy in this movement that I don't know was there in the eighties, you know, or in the nineties. Right. And what do you think it's responding to, or where do you think all this energy is coming from? Why, why are we rediscovering this now? Yeah, I could speak best to the American context. And I think, well, there is a interest internationally in what's going on, but I, I know best what, what's been going on in the U S for the last you know, half a, half a century or whatever. And that is that, in part, Catholic schools have participated in a movement in American Catholic culture toward um, normalcy, toward, toward the, the appearance of normalcy and trying to move from the margins of American culture to the center um, and become really fully a part of American culture rather than being perceived as kind of other. There's a lot of anti-Catholic bigotry in the previous century. And, and so you see this at a lot of places, right? Schools struggling, striving rather to, to look normal, to, to fit as much as possible the kind of mainstream intellectual and cultural models that are out there. And, uh, you know, some people talk about it as sort of, you know, Notre Dame is kind of an icon of this, right, of the kind of let me in, let me in movement in Catholicism, and that Hesburgh did an amazing job of accomplishing that and making Catholicism seem somehow um, a part of the, you know, meat and potatoes America and Notre Dame football is sort of meat and potatoes America. And now we have a majority of Supreme Court justices who are Catholics, right, which would be unthinkable a uh, hundred years ago. So, um, so that's, that's been a successful movement. And I, I think some of that spirit played out in Catholic parochial school systems um, and in Catholic colleges, more generally speaking, a sense that we don't have to be weird. Um, let's do everything we can to sort of participate in the mainstream, cutting edge, avant-garde, intellectual movements of now. And let's be really current, you know, make ourselves able to be in dialogue with non-Catholic thinkers. Part of what I think happens with the school systems is that they want to be comparable to the best, as, mm-hmm. as is generally understood, the best movements in education and in pedagogy. And that stuff is coming out of the Columbia School of Education and places like that. Um, certain models of education and methods of education that are fundamentally secular. I mean, they're they're based on a kind of secular principle where you take a certain approach to the the works that you're studying that excludes religious consideration that it seeks to understand the disciplines as things kind of in themselves 
apart from any sort of supernatural context or interpretation. And, um, and that that's going to get you, you know, real good, solid evidence-based education, um, or cultural education. And then for the Catholic schools, and then it's sort of a value added thing where they say, and also we go to mass once a week and we have religion class. So you're going to get that too. You'll get the best that the public schools can offer, but you'll also get religious education and catechesis and, and a certain amount of prayer and religious practice in school. And I, I think that that was sufficient for my parents' generation. Yeah, I think as a parent <laughs> now, you see the price tag of a lot of the Catholic schools in the D.C. area anyway. And it's like, where is this value added? You know, because if you live in Montgomery County or you live in Northern Virginia, you can get, you know, the sort of best of the best educations. And is the Catholic value added, you know, actually being added in tens of thousands of, you know, dollars a year, I think is an interesting yeah. question. Yeah. Well, and as I said, it was, I think that was adequate for my parents' mm -hmm. generation in part because, you know, the culture, generally speaking, was still kind of running on certain Christian, broadly defined Christian, Judeo-Christian underpinnings. Mm -hmm. um, but in my generation, all of that started to change. What you see resulting, in part from that educational model, in part from a whole lot of other factors, is a mass exodus uh, from Catholicism and Christianity in general. The failure of catechesis is not just a, a, a matter of bad religion books, though it's partly a matter of bad religion books. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, as my generation has started to become parents, we've seen that it's it's more than that, that, that you just fixing the religion books isn't going to be good enough. And I think a lot of people feel that way um, and so have, have started to try to look more deeply like Laura's talking about and, and say, well, what's what's really going on here? And why is it that even if we've got perfect religion books, we have perfectly orthodox religion books, my kids are, you know, or the kids of my friends or whatever are all starting, you know, they come out of these schools and they hold beliefs that are radically different from what I was hoping the school would lead them to. And, um, you know, are, are profoundly skeptical and even hostile toward Christianity, you know, or have really distorted view of what that even is. And so that provokes a, a need for a, a pretty profound reflection, I think, in, in Catholic education today. I think we all really need to stop and think about that really hard. Like, what went wrong? I, I kind of agree with your the way you're characterizing it, but I feel like I would want to characterize it a little bit more about like kind of the broad uh, sociological tension that's underneath all this, right? Like, and what I'm thinking is like in the 90s, we use the term like secular humanism. I haven't heard that term in a while. And my young missionaries have never heard that term. But meaning like this, like humanism that has no Christian roots, that somehow is looking for some basis other than that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember in the 90s, like critiquing that um, and hearing critiques of that. People would make, you know, secular humanism, you know, it doesn't really make sense or whatever. Right. But it didn't matter that they were critiquing it. None of the critiques got any traction because it was working. You know, like it was like um, the UN was going great. Uh, you know, you have Fukuyama into history. Liberal democracy is the end of all history. Basically, it's like it's a cut flower, but the flower's in full bloom. So tell me what you want to about this, but it's bearing fruit, you know. And now, you know, 20, 30 years later, it 
kind of sucks. And it's becoming very obvious to everyone that this is like running aground and that we have like things like kind of mental illnesses being trans transferred through school. I know no one needs to own that statement except me, but like <laughs> it appears that mental illness is contagious and it actually can be transmitted, you know, like this idea of the transgender movement and stuff where half some with some teachers, half their class identifies now as um, not it, not a, uh, not male or female, you know? And I think that now, you know, not really from the intellectual class, but just from like the common person, they're like, no, this is not good fruit. This is bad, right? Like somehow the secular humanism or whatever you want to call it, the progressivism or whatever is now running aground. And I think even the progressives know it. I don't think this is just a conservative thing. And now when you critique it, unlike the 90s, the critiques hit home. And they hit mm-hmm. home because it's bearing bad fruit right now. And they're, they can't really pretend they're being intellectually honest on some of this stuff. And because of that, I think we have this huge wave of people who want to go to the past. In a sense, to the past they never knew. You know, the, it's, it's, they never were living in the 50s. They never were living 200 years ago or whatever, right? And I think my question is, I don't, I kind of respect that that's happened because I like that we've recognized there's a problem. I know that there is a lot of truth in the past that's been forgotten. But somehow I feel like it's got to be, um, forgive this, uh, like the Hegelian idea of like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Like there was the past and then these people critiqued it very severely. Like they said, look, the past was full of religious wars. The past had a lot of bigotry. The past said this, 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 right? And now instead of just going back to thesis, we actually need synthesis, right? And I'm kind of curious. I feel like a lot of this energy in the class, in the Latin mass and in the classical education movement is coming from this, you know, and it's not bad energy. It's just like, how do we get it from not just being retro looking, but forward looking? What do you, can you respond to that? Yeah, sure. I think there probably are uh, some folks who, I mean, you see this a lot of areas of Catholic life, right? You see it with the liturgy as well. A lot of people who are like, well, this, this thing we're doing is not working. Therefore we need to just go back to what we imagine to be the point where the thing got broken and just restart, like just get a, mm-hmm. hit the restart button from there. Cause it was just a bad path. And when you go down a bad path, you don't start hacking through the woods to try to find some other path. You go back to the fork in the road where you took the wrong turn and then you take the right turn. Right. Um, I think that's, that's a common idea. And I think that can lead people to be um, both driven by fantastical nostalgic unduly nostalgic visions of what the past even was and that that makes that it, it makes it easily dismissed but it also can lead to really unwholesome things in, in um people's sensibility right a, a real closeness but you see a similar looking back movement in the renaissance right which is i've, I've argued is or claimed is uh is where a lot of our educational sensibility comes from well they were doing something similar right I, I think they noticed they were noticing a lot of big social problems in the late middle ages and they and trying to say well, well how could we do things differently and education is one of the things that came under analysis like how could we are we doing something wrong in education where we've got you know as petrarch might say we've got um the greatest universities in the world and the, all these people devoting all their time, you know, the Thomas Aquinas of the, of the world, devoting all this time to arguing about how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. And, 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 you know, they know 
the, our, all the logical arguments for Catholic doctrine perfectly, but they've got no love in their hearts. So then what's the point? Mm-hmm. Right? Something got broken. So, they, you know, there's a looking backwards and saying, well, what are we missing? And he discovers Cicero and, and the powerful language of Cicero and, and the, the, the rhetorical movement in the, in the Roman Republic toward persuasion, toward taking ideas and actually making them real in the world. And he thinks he can recapture that for Christ and for an evangelical missionary, that we can actually set hearts on fire instead of just kind of running through logical syllogisms endlessly. So I think there's something, you know, you you could have a backward lookingness that says, you know, we just need to do Cicero only, right? Um, And that was a problem with Petrarch in a way. He loved Cicero's Latin so much that he killed Latin. (laughs) He made it a dead language by saying it has to be Mm-hmm. Like Cicero's Latin, or it's no good, and it, Latin had been a living language, but but it got kind of locked into a textbook. It's a kind of irony of history, but um, you know, and you could do the same thing with education in a way. You say, well, no, we've got to sort of rediscover the trivium as we understand it, um, and you know, tell whatever story we can tell that will make it convenient for our time, and pretend like we're doing the thing that everybody used to do in the good old days of the Middle Ages, and get lost in that story and end up, you know, harming children or you could uh, alternatively right you could you could do something like what i think was imagined in the risorgimento movement in vatican ii right you return to the original sources but not in in a sense of we're going to go back to those days but rather we're going to rediscover our roots mm-hmm. right and we're going to re-fertilize our roots and and hope that that's going to you know be a source of new growth for us that we're going to flourish more if we can re-fertilize the ground and kind of dig it up and open it up and understand what's going on down there better um how we got to where we are and things that maybe have gotten lost um or de-emphasized over the years we're going to kind of bring that back and you know, open the windows and breathe with both lungs and, you know, those kinds of metaphors. And I, I think that that, you know, so that's another instance of a look backward looking movement. But I don't think Benedict and, and the, the other folks in that movement imagined that, um, you know, Ratzinger and the and other folks in that movement imagined that was going to be a, a lockdown movement. They conceived of themselves as kind of radicals. Yeah, I, I think this thing that you said, like, oh, let's let's go back to before we took the left turn, you know, and I think um, I, I think also that's our impression of Benedict, right? Like, I think he was really trying to speak to the modern person in the modern time, you know, with the modern context. And and but, you know, where do you want to start? I don't know where people want to start, but it's like you want to dismiss, you know, um, Descartes or Marx or Nietzsche or whoever. And like, I think there's something like, instead of seeing those as left turns, even though, you know, like, I think they're off, right. You know, um, as a place where it's like, I mean, they came from the Western tradition. They came from everything, you know, before the left turn. So we can't just think that everything before the left turn was perfect. And so there's a place there that, that like modern man needs speaking to, and we need to like, think about that. And I, I like the idea of like, uh, you know, like the classical education, the idea is that it should make a a person more free and like the Catholic faith should make the person more free. And like, we need to be free living in our times. Our kids need to feel freedom in the place that they exist, you know. And I, I think the strict backwards looking like limits that freedom rather than lets you engage sort of, you know, with the It also leads know. to some really silly stuff that hurts the classical movement. Like I've had people tell me that their kids learn Roman math 
and they couldn't tell me much beyond that. They were kind of in the homeschool classical movement. And I was like, are you just doing math with Roman numerals? Like, what is this? You know? And like, I've just had a lot of different people give me like statements where it's like, this sounds crazy and is kind of crazy, but the basis of what you're trying to do this go back i think exactly the way the way dan's phrasing it's a good way to phrase it you know this rediscovery is good you know but you don't want to like push you could get ideologues of the movement that are actually damaging to the movement you know yeah and i think that you got to keep the end in mind right what's your goal and and that's something that um, has been really important to the folks i've been involved with and trying to start schools and and you know um, renew curricula so you think first about what you're trying to achieve and then you can talk about the means to achieve it but if you have no clue really what you're trying to achieve if that's not clear in your mind then it's kind of silly to just start coming up with a bunch of methods to try to get to something you don't even know what it is so for us you know rather than a hegelian dialectic for the start of a new high school we had the opportunity because it was non-existent to really just start with a tabula rasa to start with a clean slate right and and say okay let's first ask ourselves what it means to be human mm. and you know then we'll say what is the catholic church then we'll ask ourselves what is you know what does the catholic church teach us about this what does a fundamentally catholic anthropology look like um and then what does it mean to be human in our time right um and what does it mean to be a human being of a certain age um and what do we need what what do we love? How are our hearts ordered? And what do we need intellectually? How are our brains developing? And let's figure out then a way of of trying something new, something that hasn't been done before, that's not at all like anything, not at all like Shakespeare's school, mm-hmm. not at all like Augustine's school or Aquinas's school or Dante's school. Um, you know, we'll read stuff written by those guys. Um, because it's, because it's good now, because it can help us now to become free and great souled and become the sort of people who are, are seeking love and are seeking to be masters of love in very challenging times, times that are not going to make it easier, comfortable for them. Um, and so for us, the question was never, is this a great book? Right. The question is why should we read a book? And if it's a good book, that's maybe not on a great books list, but that could actually for the students at where they are, who they are, the things they're facing, it could actually help them to develop their capacity to love, their capacity to read more deeply into great books, to think more carefully. Well, we should use that. And, you know, I don't care if it's on Mortimer Adler's list or not. Um, mm. And maybe there are a lot of great books that I don't think sh- I would ever want to give to high school students because they're just not in the right place in their lives for that. I'm not going to give James Joyce to a high school student because I understand James Joyce so well. I'm happy to read James Joyce with college students because I just think people's brain development is different. And, you know, what what you can expect from them is different Um, and and what they're going to be capable of doing with a book. and they're given a certain amount of freedom and respect in the classroom. And so there's books to read and then there's methods. And so that gets us back around to the Socratic seminar, as some people want to call it, though it's not very Socratic. Uh, in fact, mm. Socrates never undertook things in that way. Um, you know, that, that's, you know, his, his 
peripatetic style sometimes involved sitting around in a room together with other people, but it was in a much more casual environment. And it was certainly not led by a teacher who had goals, you know, teleological goals in mind, you know, but, but what a lot of people want to call Socratic seminar or what we'll, we just call the seminar method, right, is, is that um, dialogic education. And this is something that I've been reflecting on a lot lately uh, because there's a, the Vatican issued a new instruction for Catholic schools, um, and they focused on two things. They, they focused on what they call integral education um, uh, and um, on what promoting a culture of dialogue. And, um, you know, they, they talked about a lot of different things in that document, but there are these two kind of conceptual goods that they wanted to emphasize in the document, I think. And from my perspective, one of the great things about a seminar method with students who are prepared, well prepared for it, and with teachers who have a sense of where they're going with it, right? Um, it can get pretty aimless if you don't have a sense mm -hmm. of teleology, right? Of, of certain goals that you're trying to get to. Um, but if you understand it in a framework that's that's well structured and and you prepare the students well to be constructive in that kind of an environment, um, it really does build habits of dialogue. It makes us the kind of people who want to be in dialogue, um, and you know who who while we may respect authority, don't have our disposition primarily reception from authority, right? Which is what the kind of typical classroom is going to be. Mm -hmm. In, in many learning environments. It's just a teacher is going to give you some information. You will receive the information and you will retain the information and you will repeat the information when called upon to repeat it. And there's a certain, you know, that, that's useful for certain things. That kind of method of teaching is useful for certain things, but it doesn't shape you into the kind of person who's a dialogic person. Who's a person who asks questions, who listens, but then has something to offer, and then can listen again to what the other person has to offer with respect to what you've said. So I have great hope that you know the seminar method offers us a really practical path to uh, fostering a culture of dialogue in a way that I think you know maybe wasn't necessarily in the minds of the folks who wrote that instruction, but I think it may be the best future. If if what we if we're really serious about promoting a culture of dialogue in Catholic education, can, can I ask what you see the future as in the sense of um, how long has the Saint Jerome Institute High School been going in Hyattsville? This is our fourth year. We're the high school's in D.C. Mm -hmm. um, okay. and we are sort of a an organic growth out of the Saint Jerome project, more broadly sure. speaking, which started in the Saint Jerome Parish School. In, um, which is an archdiocesan school, which is Montessori preschool all the way up to eighth grade. Um, and so there was a major revision of that curriculum years ago. It's a long story, a really inspiring, interesting story, but I won't tell it now. But that, so that was about um, 12 years ago now or so. And so our, our high school is just in its fourth year of operation, having kind of expanded. About, about how many students are you looking at? At the high school? Yeah. Yeah. The high school, we have um, this year with four classes, we have mid-50s. So it's small still. So. Per class or the whole school? For the whole school. Whole school. Okay. All right. 
And so, I just learned that the idea is not to grow it to like the size of like a Gonzaga or yeah. No, right? I it's think that would be small. unideal. We would hope yeah. if we got to that point, if there were that much demand, that then we could inspire others to start a new school on the same model to serve you know, a a demographic center that people were coming from, because if the school gets too big, it gets really hard. I could imagine maybe creative ways to scale it up with the way you organize it, but I think it would get hard. I think it would get really hard to, to maintain the kind of culture that you want to maintain. Do you, do you think that, um, like, I think the sort of interest in classical education, and I, I also feel like there's been more than one article I've read about this kind of similar to St. Jerome's, like school was about to fold new curriculum and there's like the school is thriving now um, that maybe there will be like more classical elements in just most Catholic schools in the future, whether, you know, it's not like exactly modeled like SJI, but maybe. I do think that the St. Jerome Academy story has forced people who might have dismissed that movement Mm -hmm or that style of education in the past to have to pay more attention to it mm-hmm. because right. I mean, it was a school that was on the short list of, of archdiocesan schools to get shut down and due to a pretty inspired pastor and, and really devoted parishioners and head of school, the principal at that time were really open-minded and, and willing to listen to the laity and, and trust a, a lay curricular group to completely revise uh, the curriculum there. Um, that right. That now it's become, I believe, the only school in the archdiocese that's added enrollment. This is enrollment has gone up every single mm-hmm. year since since that change of curriculum. And so right. So that's I think that's forced people to pay a little more attention. But I think and I think it's inspiring. Right. It's um, mm-hmm. it's attractive. It's attractive to a certain number of families. I think there are questions of scale with respect to a particular curriculum. The St. Jerome Academy curriculum, I do think it can scale a little more easily just because of the way that it's formed. I think at the high school level, we're seeking a much a kind of more personal, more intensive, smaller teacher-student ratio um, mm-hmm. because of the seminar method that requires it doesn't work as well if you have a lot of students in one room. And so, right, you know, there are great challenges to scaling that up to a really huge size. You maybe could do it. But but with the lower school, the methods that they use um, are a mix of rote memorization, song, lecture, um, and teacher-student dialogue, directed discourse, stuff like that. And and as they get older, then seminars as well, potentially. So, you know, so that's, that scales more easily. And, and so archdiocesan, you know, or, or diocesan systems can look at that and say, oh, well, that might be something like that might be implementable really easily or at least relatively easily mm-hmm. without opening a whole bunch of new schools, which I think is a concern for some. And it's a challenge for the future of, uh, at the high school level if we're really serious about um, the kinds of methods that we're looking for. But I think a lot of people want it. I think there's a hunger for it. I think um, the the great thing about the high school level is there are a lot of homeschool families that sort of hit their limit at yeah. high school and are are ready. Then they 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 feel their kids are ready to kind of move out into a more a more foreign environment or an environment that's a little more challenging culturally or more complex culturally. And you know, the teachers teaching subjects that maybe they're a little harder for to to feel expert enough to teach your kids in it and that kind of thing. Well, I kind of want to 
ask about the high school level and scalability in the sense of um, like what you described, I think is very beautiful that like a bunch of people came and tabula rasa created the curriculum for the high school. Cause I feel like that high school's success is going to depend a lot on whoever is running the seminars or the headmaster. And yeah. it's also going to depend on this curriculum you created, right? Cause if you have a bad headmaster, that's not going to work or a bad curriculum is not going to work. Right. But I wouldn't say that, like what Hyattsville in DC has, which is kind of neat, is you have a whole bunch of philosophy PhDs, yeah. theology. Like you can't go to a small town in Kansas and say parents get together and tabula rasa write a curriculum, and you know, appoint one of yourselves headmaster, right? <laughs> but true. So we ha- we yeah, I mean, and and so you know, a lot of the philosophical work we feel like that's something that we have to offer, right? That for whatever reason, the spirit chose St. Jerome's and this community as a, as, a, as a place to promote a certain kind of flourishing. And part of the opportunity is the high concentration of, uh, you know, really devoted Catholic intellectuals that live around here, uh, but also Catholic teachers with a lot of practical experience. So, you know, it's not just philosophical, but it's also there's a deep practical wisdom to it. And then um, right. And now we've we've actually started the school and we're running it and we're implementing it and, and we have uh, we can offer a lot of practical advice. But I, I do think that in if you're going to implement this kind of thing broadly, you're going to need more administrators and more teachers who can understand a way of educate of doing education that does have the challenge of not being plug and play. You mm-hmm. can't just have somebody show up. And, and just implement daily plans and have it be the kind of lively, vibrant education that we're looking for. I mean, for us at the high school level, you know, we think it's got a, a high school should be a school for teachers. I mean, it's, it's a place where the teachers have a really lively intellectual life. And that for teenagers is really inspiring, right? That they're not just people who are showing up and punching their time cards. They're people who themselves care about learning and that energy conveys itself to the students, right? The students know this isn't just a bunch of phony stuff or a bunch of people who, you know, are a bunch of hypocrites. They really love this stuff. They're excited about it. They're still learning. So then we can be a part of that and the teachers can invite them into that. But you've got to promote that with teachers. And so uh, there's a great opportunity right now at the Catholic University of America in the Institute for the Transformation of Catholic Education, uh, which started up recently. And part of its mission is to develop teacher training, administrator formation uh, programs that can inspire a new outlook on Catholic education, that can inspire these kinds of thoughtful dialogues. You know, our, our particular curriculum, maybe it's the best thing for every school ever. Maybe not. We're still figuring that out. Maybe everybody's got to come up with their own thing. But what we need are people. What are the returns? Because like in a normal school, you might say Iowa test of basic skills is how you measure the school, mm-hmm. right? I'm just throwing yeah. that out as an example, yeah. right? And my my question is, you're now getting to the point, you've been around four years as a high school. How are you, like, I don't think we want to assume the success of the curriculum or assume mm-hmm. the success of the high school. It's like, how are you going to evaluate that? Like, are they going to become future artists? Are they going to become just remain Catholic? Are they going to be nice people you want to be around or leaders? Or like, can you help me understand, like, how will you know if it worked? And then we could talk about how to promote it more widely, I guess. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So assessment is a word that often gets used in the world of education studies and, and education generally to try to find ways of answering that question. Are, is what we're doing working? Are we achieving our ends with the means that we're using? Um, and I think within the world of what we call sort of classical education or whatever you want to call it, that's kind of a bad word. Um, people <laughs> don't like that word because of the abuses, the really manifest abuses of regimes of assessment that are profoundly reductive that are out there. So we've been kind of um, allergic to uh, assessments <laughs> in our ministry, although, you know, some, you have to assess certain things, but we don't we don't, you know, uh, are kind of OK with, um, you know, spending a month uh, with a alcoholic who can't get his life together, you know, and not saying we've had, you know, 200 families this month or something, you know. Um, but I, I so. want to throw out there, though, that like I've met teachers who are not classical teachers who are allergic to assessments because they're all about the whole person. And I'm not convinced at all they're doing anything good with the whole person. And I kind of feel like I wish you would at least meet the assessment, you know, like at least teach the kid the math because I don't (laughs) think you're doing a good job with the whole person, you know? So it's like, I find that sometimes this is a dodge also to just be a bad teacher. Yeah, that's right. It's a danger. And, and right. I mean, so many of the things we're talking about go back to a, you know, a wise old principle, you know, um, abusus non toledusum, right. That like, um, you know, the abu- we, we had to be careful, right. The abu- but the abuse of a thing shouldn't mean that the thing itself is useless. Right. Um, mm. And, and, and yeah, right. These things, the, the assessment regime is a regime and and that we use that word in a way to convey something about yeah that abuse exists and i understand the allergy that a lot of people have to the word assessment on the other hand i do think you can set goals for yourself and try to figure out ways to um judge whether your means are achieving your end and if you don't then you're not functioning prudently mm-hmm. I think it's a fundamental aspect of the of the virtue of prudence to do so. And so, you know, whether we want to talk about assessment or whether we want to talk about prudence, you know, um, I'm happy to use the word prudence if that's a word that's that, you know, is more tolerable. So with respect to our high school, you asked, you know, you put put the question to the high school in particular. And I think that's a really good thing to do. You, know, you really have to challenge yourself. And you really have to be self-reflective in an education environment, especially if you're kind of separating yourself from um, a community of typical standards. Right, and you're trying to do something new. Well, then you've got to be extra vigilant and extra thoughtful about how to evaluate what you're doing because everybody always thinks the thing they're doing is the best thing ever. So, mm-hmm. um, so I guess what I would say is there are different measures that you could use for different aspects of the work that's going on at that school, right? At St. Jerome Institute in particular, and I think that would this might apply to any kind of high school that would follow a model like ours. One way that you can evaluate these things is you can look at you can look at testing, right? So our our students take the national Latin exam, right? It's a it's a relatively respected uh, way of evaluating how well they're learning Latin, um, and so then we can look at the results of of that and offer that to parents and say, well, look, right? Make of that what you will, um, and we can help with interpretation of it if need be. Well, why did you choose Latin and not like math? What's that? 
what like the the choice of Latin is kind of interesting, yeah. just because yeah. Catholics are particularly interested in that. But like, what about math? I choose it because it's a classical specific or kind of like you know Catholic liberal education specific thing. So with math, uh, right? We our our math curriculum is revolutionary, and you know we don't have time to talk about it right now. But it's really different from a typical math curriculum and so right that's a place where you might get really nervous and start kind of wanting some kind of standard assessment to at least see how does it compare how do you compare the students who go through this with students who go through this thing that you're saying isn't working and you want to do something new right well prove that your thing is better than the broken thing we've already got um so yeah so we also have had students take the standardized tests like the SATs and so forth. Um, you know, it's elective, uh, but um, they they have done well, right? So for, give me give you a very concrete example of a particular student. Um, one of our graduates last year is now doing engineering computer science at the University of Maryland, right? So that takes standard math knowledge to even get accepted to a program like that. Right. We have a relatively small number of students, right? So there, we don't, you know, we've got a very small sample size. You can't, these are not arguments that are going to have statistical viability. Um, but over time, you can track things like that, right? You can track college admissions. And, you know, we don't, we think it's really unwholesome to think about education in that kind of teleology, right? Like high school education, like the purpose of it is to get to college. I th- I think that that can get you into a lot of trouble. But if you're asking questions about, well, okay, but but what, you know, with you not focusing on that in the school, right? That's not something we focus on in the school or in our curriculum or anything. Like, can your kids still get into college? Um, are they still going to get into programs that are going to, you know, take them down a particular career path if that's what they want? If they want to do a professional program in college, are they going to be prepared for that? So far, our students have been successful in achieving what they wanted to achieve with respect to college admissions. So that's one thing you can look at. You can have them take the SATs and so forth. You know, colleges are starting to jettison the SATs. So, you know, but it's it's out there. There's also the classical learning exam. So if you want to compare one classical school to another classical school. Um, well, I guess you know, where I'm going with this eventually is. Uh, why I find this interesting is like um, the Chesterton academies are in a sense offering a curriculum in a box, right? Hey, you want to start a, a classical high school? Here's a curriculum for you go. I love what you guys are trying to do in St. Jerome's, right? And I feel like the first step would be get some enough graduates that you have an assessment. And then do you guys have, if it, if you guys get the assessment you like and everything's looking great, are you guys going to put your curriculum in a box and ship it out to the rest of the nation? Or what's the idea? Well, we have, we have long talked about the best way to open this up to other people who would like to benefit from the inspiration that we've been given. And curriculum in a box is one <laughs> is one idea that's floated around out there. I, I think, you know, there there's a, a certain amount of discernment that's required depending on what schools are expecting or even what's best. So yeah, we're talking about putting something together that would be a product that schools could adopt. We also are talking about mentorship, advising, formation of the persons. As you said, you know, the best curriculum in a box is no good. 
if you don't have the right people who who have understand the spirit of it if you have a bunch of people who want to do robotic education and you hand them a humanistic curriculum well they're they're going to still do robotic education and and not only that it's going to take all the most beautiful things and trash them it's going to make people hate them because they were so badly foisted upon them and then they're going to like there's going to be a new rejection of the old thing and right again so these are complex matters right when you think about trying to take something that's a very local inspired movement with universal aspirations right um how do you get there is a, is a complex question it's an exciting question and i do think that in time we will have some kind of a product that we offer and it might kind of exist at multiple different levels sort of right like something that's more philosophical and you know sending people out to to help um mentor those folks bringing them in to help them see how it works in our school um and then just just being there to guide them through the process of creation but then also potentially more you know generating a lot of materials we have a lot of course plans and materials and stuff like that but again i i think you got to be careful with that kind of thing you could do more harm than good by not not helping people to understand the more fundamental thing. And the more fundamental thing is who are the teachers? Right. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, do more harm than some of the educations that are currently out there. Well, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. educations are doing harm right now, it, it seems like. I think it's like when you give like um, a kid like a beautiful thing, like, a, you know, you give kid Catholicism, but a little awry, it's like almost can be like a really big evil you know when it's like a little bit off like it it i don't know um, i went to catholic schools and they drove me right out of the catholic church right yeah and i i think you know i think we all know a lot of people that have that story and i i'm kind of torn because like um this prudence idea and this idea that assessments is part of prudence um this is kind of important to me because i feel like part of the instinct at simple house from the early days was the truth is not in the mainstream right now. The way we're mm -hmm. approaching the poor, the way we're doing mission work is not, uh, the, the, the real truth's not there. The truth is instead on the fringe, on the radical, on the, you know, off the beaten path. Right. But once you go, once you take the time as kind of a sane person to go seek the truth off the beaten path, you know, what you find out is you're in the land of the crazies. You know, like yeah. <laughs> every crazy person is out there with you. Right. And so people are trying to join Simple House who are just like nuts, you know, and your peer organizations, are most nuts. of which are nuts, not all <laughs> like the truth is out on the fringe, but it's like you're in the land of nuts, you know, and they all look good for at least a year. You know what I mean? Like every new school starts with this like great idea that all looks good for a year. And then you only after every new ministry to the poor does too. And after two, three years, you find out if. They're like smoke and crack in the basement, you know, <laughs> I'm not really kidding. I'm just like, like things end yeah. badly when things go badly. And it's just, it's just kind of interesting. Like, I think this, like this idea of prudence has been kind of like important for simple house that it's very hard to assess what we do, but I'm not afraid of the term. I want assessment. I like, if you want to talk to me for three hours about whether or not what we do works, I'm up for that because I think it's that important. Cause if, if we're like ruining Catholics, if we're burning people out, if we're, because there are ministries that literally burn out every missionary yeah. they have, and that missionary leaves that group not wanting to go to church anymore. And it's like, can we just pause for a minute and say, 
maybe yeah. we're completely off, you know? Yeah, anyway. right. We distributed X number of calories, but we destroyed X number of hearts. Which, <laughs> right, <laughs> what's right. the calculus there? So I yeah. really don't like it when people are afraid of the hard questions of does it work? Yeah. Like, are we actually achieving the lofty goals that we started with? It's not enough to just have the right intention on this, you know? Definitely yeah, not. But I, I think um, like a thing that we've talked about also is like um, parents being sort of afraid of what the world has to offer right now and then being very focused on like, did the kids learn the right thing, you know? And uh, like Dan said, you could be kind of offering someone like a false bill of goods, right? Um, if you're actually killing these ideas and works that you're reading, you know, um, and killing the desire for knowledge and if there's, you know, an idea that an ed- education can make you more free, I think there's probably then the <laughs> corresponding idea that it could bind you more, you know. But I also think there's also too much fear where it's like, like, let's say you do make a curriculum in a box. That's kind of the simplest way to get something mm-hmm. out mass, right? Yeah. Fra- franchising or founding these other schools would be the harder way, right? But like, you just have to tell people, you know, this is just a box. Yeah, right. You know, right. and... Yeah. It might work, it might not, depends on your headmaster, depends on your family supporting the community, it yeah. depends on a lot of factors, right? But we can give you at least a decent box. Yeah. But if instead you act like the box is everything, without this box, you cannot do it. You know, yeah. this box There's is better a, than the Chesterton yeah. box by an order of 1,000, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so my oldest is in fifth grade at St. Jerome Academy, and the fifth grade teacher is like a, a favorite from what I understand, <laughs> um, Dan, you would know better, but, uh, She's great. You know, she, yeah, she was saying, um, you know, so she has, uh, this is like the American year, right? Like American history. And she has them recite all these, um, kind of famous speeches. And they even sometimes go to like the location where these speeches were delivered and like the students deliver the speech there. Um, but she was talking about her students memorize like uh, parts of the I have a dream speech and they recite this and, you know, they have like goosebumps, you know, afterwards. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's what I'm here for, you know. So simply having a student memorize and deliver the I have a dream speech might not wake up the goosebumps, you know, uh, like that. So so that that teacher has a talent and art, uh, you know, something yeah, a good teacher has to really struggle with with a careful balance between those aspects of learning that are unpleasant for really good reason and those aspects of learning that excite the affect, right? That make a student feel like they like what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, so the example I use with my students a lot of times is is learning to play a musical instrument. If you want to learn to play a musical instrument, you have to go through a lot of really unpleasant just repetition, mm-hmm. boring, sometimes physically painful work. And it doesn't seem like a fun thing to do. But if somebody forces you to do it, or if you're able to force yourself to do it for long enough, then you get to the point where through that labor, you become free for a kind of joyful behavior that's joyful to yourself, but also gives you something to offer to the world that you could never have had otherwise. And so, yeah, I agree that the end point is the goosebumps in a way. The end point is hearts formed for love. Mm-hmm. But, right, but sometimes you, you've got, you, for a good teacher, you've got to be able to find a careful path because you can't get there a lot of times without a certain amount of work that is going to seem unpleasant because you've got an ill-formed soul. And mm-hmm. so you don't love the good yet. Um, and then the good seems really unpleasant to you. 
Yeah, the the goosebumps story told me also like I because it's like I learned in history class, you know, about Martin Luther King. I learned about this speech. I learned that it happened in time, you know, but um, that somehow like the, you know, the kids were sort of deeply engaging with the meaning, you know, uh, and the context and the power of that speech. Like I I, I know, also think yeah. that the Catholic world is ripe to have teachers right now. And I, I say that to mean like um, Dunbar High School in the days of segregation was one of the best high schools in D.C., was out competing most of the white high schools and was taking kids from a poorer status to a higher status. Like they weren't starting with wealthy kids, you know. And part of that was because they had a lot of PhDs working at the high school. They had a lot of people who probably were college professor quality at Dunbar High School because of segregation. And then somehow that high school gets destroyed, you know. Maybe because we finally gave those PhDs jobs in colleges, or maybe it just got destroyed because we just were, didn't care, you know? But I think right now I see so many young Catholics getting masters and PhDs in theology, and there are no jobs for them. You know, I had a philosophy PhD tell me that um, he tells other philosophy PhDs that they should start looking at secondary ed, like high school ed, because the opportunities there and the careers there are way better than what they're ever going to see in college. You know, and um, I'm not saying this just like, hey, these PhDs, blah, blah. But actually, when I meet them, they're good people. They're interesting people. They're people with ideas, you know, like they just seem like they'd be good teachers. And I just see so much of that right now with people with all this that have no role. And I just if we could somehow I just think we're ripe to have the good headmasters and the good teachers to stock these schools. You know, have you found that, by the way, in hiring or am I just like hopeful? Yeah, I, I think that's true. People who are kind of intellectuals out there who pursued that, maybe with the idea that they were going to be a college professor, um, maybe out of a kind of habit of degree inflation, and they just mm -hmm. went on to the next thing because that's what they could do. Or, um, maybe just because they loved it, and they just wanted to not quit living the intellectual life for a while. Sometimes those folks are well disposed to be high school teachers. It's not always the case <laughs> yeah. that somebody who can get an advanced degree in in certain fields um, will necessarily be a good teacher of those things or other things at the high school level. So you have to be discerning. Um, but it's true. We have had some really talented um, applicants at the St. Jerome Institute High School. And, and so our headmaster has been able to select a really amazing team of teachers, all of whom, again, are, are intellectually alive. They're intellectually alive mm. and excited, and they share that philosophical friendship with each other. And that's a just an implicit call to the students, right? In a way, the medium is the message, right? The, the very life of the school faculty, in a way, teaches as much as, as what they're learning in the mm. classroom um, about how to live one's life. And they're people of deep faith, People have serious intellectual commitments, and they're doing that together uh, really joyfully. And it, that's, it's inspiring. I mean, it's really inspiring to me to go and visit the school. And I know we invite anybody to do that. If they can't wrap their heads around what this thing is we're describing, go see it. Visit, visit a school. You know, find a school near you that's got a good reputation, that's maybe doing this new thing. Go see what the life is like there. If you're in the D.C. area, um, come come visit St. Jerome Academy. Come visit St. Jerome Institute and, and see what it's all about. And when we were talking earlier about like the sort of success and the metrics of the curriculum, you said you have to be extra vigilant when you're kind of setting yourself 
a separate. And I think another thing that we um, bring up often is like, oh, I think there's like also a vigilance when you're setting yourself as separate with kind of your mindset or um, attitude. Um, and, uh, you know, we're always saying here, like, we don't just want to be against the world or against whatever, but we want to be building like a positive idea of the church, a hopeful vision of the future. I, I guess, is there a way that SJI or like you've thought about how to sort of um, encourage the families also in that, that, that hey, way? Can yeah. I piggyback on your question yeah. a little bit? Like mm-hmm. I, you know, whenever I have any issue with classical ed at all, it's because I just meet a parent who's so afraid of the modern world that they are promoting it. You know what I mean? Right. And, um, and really this is an unfair criticism on my part because it's like, there's parents like th- there's parents with weird issues at every school, yeah. not every, you know, <laughs> it had to be classical, right? They don't all have to be <laughs> like super enlightened parents. I mean, schools need to take kids from all of these parents, you know? So, um, anyway, I, I look forward to hearing what your, your response to Laura's, the ilk of Laura's question. Yeah, I, I think our, our curriculum is, it observes what we think are the deficiencies or the problems we're trying to respond to to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't have to make a change. Right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? But um, but not so much um, in, a, in a kind of combative way, but rather just saying, okay, so the world's changed. The world is always changing. It's, you know... Um, so, sort of classical observation, right? A Heraclitan <laughs> observation. Yeah. You never step in the same river twice. And and right now, there's obviously a crisis in our schools, both the secular and the religious schools, right? I mean, everybody knows there's a problem with American education right now, and everybody's kind of scrambling to try to figure it out. Um, and, you know, there, those problems have a particular sort of intensity, I think, for the Catholic school systems. Um, because, uh, you know, they're really struggling even to keep the doors open in a lot of areas, um, except it in very, you know, very privileged areas. Um, you know, so there's, I, I think it's a, it's, it's an important moment not to trash the past, but rather to say, how can we give young people what they need now with a really clear eyed view and a clear understanding of now? So in a way you might say in order to do Catholic liberal education or classical education well, you need to understand the present at least as well as the past. What seems to be coming down the road for young people nowadays? And how can we help them to um, meet the challenges of the time and prepare for the challenges of the future? And among the challenge, those challenges is a kind of fragmentary trend in contemporary American culture. Mm-hmm. And we've got to understand that really well in order to contend with it. Um, and in order to figure out how, what's the best way to help students, young people develop in a less fragmentary way. If, if you're talking about families and you're talking about family culture, and that's a whole other topic, right? The relationship between what you're proposing in a curriculum and then how that's manifested in the life of a school. But then there's also all the families, right, whom you're serving. The point of a Catholic school is to help the parents, right? Uh, in their vocation as the teachers of their children. So we also see it as a goal to help yeah. the the parents gain a clearer view of the world as it is, get, get um, a handle on what the heck's going on in the world that they're seeing around them that sometimes seems so scary. 
but also to show them how much how much joy and how much promise there is. You can't just re- re- withdraw from the world. You have to understand it. I love that. That's yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Play us I out. Think that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Please yeah. like, subscribe, comment, um, share our podcast, share it with anybody who's thinking about classical education. And thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both yeah. for inviting me on today. Uh, really appreciate the chance. Oh, yeah. No, we appreciate having you. All right. Great. Thanks for the conversation. All right. Thank All right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.